0: All right, well, grab your Bibles and open them up to uh, Proverbs 31. Uh, we are continuing through Proverbs. We're in the last chapter of Proverbs this week, uh, and then next week, uh, we'll, next week we'll finish, and then um, we will move into a shortened Advent series uh, that'll take us through the end of the year. Um, now, as we finish up this, this book of wisdom, in this last chapter, we're going to be given some very practical advice aimed at kings and women, um, which may sound like, seem like a somewhat odd pairing. Um, but in some ways kings and women they're what make the world go round right in other words if leaders are leading well um, and if um, uh, women are doing all that God has given them to do uh, society will flourish Um, and it fits in with what we just read in the reading of the law God has designed a way for this world to function and it is best that we act in parallel with it. Now, this idea of sort of living out the role that we were created for was addressed in the last chapter uh, when the author of Proverbs looked at the strength that comes from knowing your purpose and living it out. Um, and this is how it was, it was put. This is in verses 24 through 28 of Proverbs 30. It says, Four things on the earth are small, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are a people not strong, yet they provide their food in the summer. The rock badgers are a people not mighty, yet they make their homes in the cliffs. The locusts have no king, yet all of them march in rank. Uh, The lizard you can take in your hands, yet it is in the king's palaces. Um, I love these verses because they're so visual. Uh, They describe the reality of God's creation in pictures that are, are, you know, they're sort of fun. They're a little different than what we are used to reading in Scripture. Uh, And Andrew went over all of these last week, but I just want to repeat it because I just think it's a helpful way to think about how God has created this world to function. Right, So we have ants and we have locusts and we have lizards and then we have rock badgers. And I went home and looked up rock badgers because I had no idea what a rock badger was. Maybe you already knew, um, but I felt the need to go, what, what is happening here? Um, it tells us the rock badgers are not strong, but they make their homes in the cliffs, and so rock badgers are these little animals common in the Middle East that are about the size of a groundhog, um, and they they live in a place where they have little to no means of defending themselves. Um, they're they're basically just just prey for everything, um, um, and yet. They have figured out, or God created them, I should say, um, to, to have this way of defending themselves that they live high in the cliffs and they find places to hide. They are, they are adept at hiding. They, they make their homes in the crevices of the rock uh, where they can fit and those things that hunt them cannot. Um, and so that's what it's talking about here. Along with that, um, they live in, in, uh, communally and they actually have learned how to set up kind of a, a, a communication, kind of centuries that, that, that keep watch. Um, so they have a whole kind of alarm system that goes on that, that lets everyone know when to hide, when to get out of harm's way. And so what we see here is they are not mighty. Um, the rock badger is not going to fight their way out of a fight, but they have a means to survive. God has created them in such a way that they have this strength that allows them to flourish. And each of these small creatures named here who can accomplish great things, um, they do it simply by following the order that they were created for. Right? They, are not, they are wise, it tells us, because rather than fighting against who they are, they align with it. They simply live out uh, the order that God created. And the idea is that we can do the same. Right? As part of God's creation, we all have a part to play. And living this out uh, allows even our limited power, our limited strength, our limited wisdom to produce God's great ends. Now, if that is all true... If we are able to do great things simply by by following God's order, then we should want clarification on what that order looks like. But too often, that actually is not what we want. A good portion of the time, we would rather be affirmed and supported in our ignorance than given godly direction. And I know this because my job is to stand up here and do my best to clarify the purpose and place that God has created for each of us. Right? I specifically am trying some, from Scripture to say this is the order that God has placed into creation and it doesn't always go well. Now part of the reason for this is because culturally we've been told that to love someone and to care for them is to support them as they are. And so the worst thing that you could possibly do is point out someone's flaws or correct someone or show them that they should maybe be doing something differently than they currently are. All of this has been deemed shaming. But the only reason we think of it this way is because we put the ultimate benefit on self-expression. And if being yourself is the ultimate good, then someone correcting you is an attack on that. Of course, if good is something apart from us, which is what the Bible says, if there is a purpose that we were created for, that would bring about the greatest benefit to ourself and to others, then the most loving thing that someone could do is help us to find it. And that's what Proverbs 31 is here for. It's directing us to get our lives in sync with the world that we live in. Now, in some ways, this intro is all really preparing for next week. Uh, the second half of Proverbs 31 is a woman of noble character, one of the most loved and hated sections of Scripture. Um... But it's important for this week as well, uh, as we look at the discipline necessary to take on the responsibility of leading. What is it that we need to do to be able to, to take on the responsibility that God has given to us? Let's get into it. Proverbs 31, we're going to start in verse 1. It says this, it says, The words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. All right, we're going to stop there. Um, we begin by being told that what we're about to read um, is, is the wisdom brought to us by King Lemuel. Now, like last week with King Agur, uh, we really don't know anything about this king, um, other than his name here. We, we know nothing about his history. We, we don't necessarily know where he fits um, into the grand scheme of sort of humanity, um, which is a good reminder for us as we read this book of wisdom. Uh, the author is not the main issue. Never has been. Many people think of Proverbs as a product of Solomon, um, and some of it is, but like King Agur and King Lemuel, he is just a conduit for the wisdom of God, right? These people here are merely the hands that God uses to pass on his truth, which is true, of course, not just of Proverbs, but of the whole Bible. I think one of the most amazing things about Scripture is its synergy, Um, It's all these different genres, different voices, and and, and in all of that it has this consistent truth that holds it all together, right? The Bible was written by by 40 different voices over the course of a few thousand years, and yet when you read it, it is cohesive and it is self-affirming, and this is because it's not simply connected to an individual or a lot of individuals, but to a God who is over all. And so it can flow out through all of these separate people because he is the one who is working through each and every one of them. Of course, God not only works out through their pens, he is also working out through all parts of their life. And we see here that what King Lemuel is going to share with us today was taught to him by his mother. He is bringing us a wisdom of, the wisdom of God instilled in him by his mom. Now, Proverbs is focused on the relationship between father and son, uh, but this was never to discount the effect of mothers. Um, in many homes, moms do the majority of the teaching and formation. Moms play a major role in the development and growth of kids, physically, emotionally, and educationally. And as I said at the beginning, this world does not function as it was meant to unless we have good moms. So here, at community church, we love moms. Somehow I have a Mother's Day sermon in the middle of December. Um, Hold on to that because I'm probably not going to preach one on Mother's Day. Um. But as we talk about living out the purpose that we were made for, we must begin by recognizing that we all have a grand calling. Right? We all have been called to bring glory to God as we bring his creation back into proper relationship with him. And what that means is, we all serve the eternal king of the universe and have been called specifically to play a part in his eternal plan. And so, no matter who you are or what you see as your role in society, your role in God's work is important. Now, we tend to read our value um, through the eyes of who the culture says we are. And most of the time, that's a value based on competition. Right? We're always measuring ourselves based on, on some other person and, and, and often feeling like we're not doing good enough. This is why I occasionally will push back on things like Pinterest and mom blogs because moms end up feeling like they're doing a terrible job because they're comparing themselves to other moms. Right? We see this in a lot of places. Uh, one of the areas I think that is most extreme in our world today is between men and women. Right? There's this battle between the sexes that is a fight over value and importance, And I would just want to say, it's all manufactured. Now, when I say it's all manufactured, I don't mean that there are no inequalities or injustices. There certainly are. What I'm saying is it all stems from a misunderstanding of how we were meant to fit together. And rather than spending our time playing the comparison game, measuring ourselves against one another, we are meant to recognize the unique benefit that each one brings, And so we should learn to see the diversity of strengths that God has created. The way that he has created and ordered it to function. And to do this, it brings immense meaning to who we are. Whether that seems large or small by the world's estimation. In God's economy, the ants and the rock badgers and the locusts and the lizards all have an important function. How much more does each one of us who he created in his image. And so rather than making wisdom a point of competition, we should recognize that the goodness of God comes through in a variety of different ways through a diver- variety of different people. The wisdom presented to us today in Proverbs comes to us through a king because of his mother. And here's what they say, verse 2. It says, what are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? Um, Now again, this is a continuation of what we've seen in Proverbs over and over. Uh, The parent is looking at the decisions being made by their child and asking, what are you doing? Now this question implies a few different things. Um, The first thing it implies is that there actually is a right thing that the son should be doing. Right as, as, as the parent here questions their, their, their son's actions, um, it's not only because their son is making poor choices, but because there's a better choice to make. There is a good and right purpose for the son, and he is choosing otherwise. The second thing that's implied here is that the son thinks he is making the right choice. Right? There's a disconnect we see between parent and child, um, but the son is not choosing poorly just, you know, for fun. Right? The child isn't going like, hmm, I think I should mess my life up today. Right? No, they're acting out of their own idea of what is best. He believes that he knows better than his parents, and so he's going against what his parents have taught him is good. And so I mentioned the disconnect earlier between men and women. Here we see a very real competition that also exists in our culture, um, which is a competition between generations. Uh, We see this play out when older people complain about millennials and Gen Z. Younger people respond with, okay, boomer. Um, Along with this, there is a long history and plenty of, of pop songs written about how parents just don't understand and adults always frustrated with kids these days. And I don't know why that has an accent. Kids these days. Now, I don't want to spend a ton of time here, but this is another place to acknowledge God's order um, and and to basically get aligned with how he has created things to function because he's given us direction on this. Kids are told to honor their father and mother in the Ten Commandments because parents have been given to lead, care, and shape their children. We see this repeated in the New Testament as well. In Ephesians chapter 6, it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. So children are called to honor their parents, listen to them, work with them, allow what they have learned along the way to guide you. And it says there's a promise with it. Right? With this command, there's a promise that it will go well with you, right? that you will miss out on good if you decide that you think you know better. They have something to offer you that will protect and guide you and God has placed them in your life to help you avoid the result of what you simply do not maybe understand yet. Now Ephesians 6 goes on also to talk to parents. To parents it says, fathers do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so parents, fathers here specifically, are called to nurture their kids rather than smothering them. They are not to rule with an iron fist, but to realize that what they are raising is a human being. And so nurturing and cherishing must accompany structure and punishment. And so parents have been given a great responsibility. And when you recognize the immensity of that task, uh, then it becomes obvious that it's not just about you disciplining your kids, but that you must be disciplined as a parent. And what I mean by that is to do the job, you're going to have to let your own desires and sins go. These things will get in the way of fulfilling the purposes that, of the task that God has given to you. And this is what the next section is going to get to. Knowing what we are called to requires us to take seriously the things that will get in the way of what is better. Now, before we jump into that, I just want to say this relationship between kids and parents um, sort of has all of this potential conflict already built in, and in our society, again, there's all these voices from the outside that will kind of feed it. What we need to do is be able to step back and realize that kids and parents and the young and the old all have a part to play. And when we see that, then it becomes about how to best complement one another. You're not coming in basically looking at everything as a fight and a competition. You can come in and say, how do we best work together to accomplish what God has given for us to do? Of course, this is true of much more than just parents and kids, as the next section shows us. Verse 3 says this. It says, do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings, It's not for kings, O Lemuel, it's not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink. Lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. So there's two warnings here. Uh, The first warning here is about giving your strength to women, Um, and we've covered this pretty thoroughly throughout the book of Proverbs, um, that if you allow your passions to rule over you, they can lead you down some very unwise paths. And while the desires of the flesh feel so powerful in the moment, they feel like the realest thing, the truth of the matter is they are blinding us from a lot of the realities. And as we have said, this isn't just about women, Um, this is about what you give your heart to. The thing that you love will rule over you. We are a people who are made to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when we choose to love something else more, it's not just idolatry, it disorders everything. We lose the ability to actually prioritize the life that we have been given. Now the second warning that this section gives us is against drinking wine. Um, and interestingly, I've heard this section of Scripture used both to sort of support the drinking of alcohol and to go against the drinking of alcohol. And the reason for that is because it both gives a warning about the dangers of drinking wine while also acknowledging a time and a place where it may be helpful. Which shows us that the issue is not primarily alcohol, but using things in a proper way. Right? So there's a, there's a place for wine and there's a place where it will be a distraction. It gives us sort of two, two scenarios to think this through. Um, the first one is of a king on his throne ruling. Now, a king who is on his throne has a very specific role. He's to rule over the people with justice, uh, to make wise decisions and to lead in dignity and honor. Um, back in Proverbs 29, it described it this way. It says, "...if a king faithfully judges the poor, his throne will be established forever." And so the responsibility, this this, this job, this purpose that was given to this king demands a sober-mindedness. And so the reason why a king should not drink wine is because his mind must be sharp in order to uphold justice and make judgments. Alcohol then is going to inhibit his ability to do his job. Wine would prevent the king from being able to accomplish what he has been called to. Now, the effect of alcohol on um, the ability to judge has been described to us already in Proverbs, in Proverbs 23, where it says, Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things, and your heart utter perverse things. Now, it would not be good for a king who is making judgments to see strange things and for his heart to utter perverse things. Because in his case, that means a lot of people are going to get hurt in the process. So it isn't just a matter of what he can or can't do, but that his purpose is to lead. And the decisions that he makes are going to have consequences. And so it would be wrong for him to allow his judgments to be limited or distorted through the use of substances. Now, this proverb then goes on to give us sort of a proper place or use for alcohol. It says, give it to the one who is perishing. Right? This can be used to decrease pain. This is sort of speaking in a medicinal context. Uh, they didn't have all the medicine that we have today, and so it's basically saying if someone is in pain, they are dying. Uh, that might be a right place for the use of alcohol. Now we see Paul give a specific command to Timothy to use alcohol in a medicinal way as well in First Timothy chapter 5 when he says, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Right? So sickness and death is not the only appropriate place, though. Uh, We're told in Psalms that God created wine to gladden the heart of man, like it was created for that purpose. And in Psalm 104, which is a psalm we read at the beginning, it goes on to say, "'You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart.'" Now, if you remember from the first 13 verses, Psalm 104 is all about how God created a place and an order for everything. Um, and so when it says that God created wine, it means that wine was not just somebody left the grapes out and, whoa, look what happened! Like, like God knew about the fermenting process when he created grapes, right? And he had, a, he had a specific purpose for wine on the other end, to gladden the heart of men. And so one of the created purposes of alcohol was to be something that was enjoyed, especially to bring people together. Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine so that a wedding celebration could continue on. And so in all of this, we see that it can be this wonderful gift from God that helps us to praise him for his goodness and makes us celebrate together in a way that can produce unity and community. And we see that. There's there's lots of ways that um, it has become sort of a cultural, we get together and we, we, we celebrate together. But of course, there's the other side. Right? Alcohol can be like a serpent that stings and perverts and distorts our purpose. So it can be something that brings people together, celebration of life. It can, it can also be something that destroys relationships and ruins lives. And so like everything else in the world, it was created good. It had a role in human flourishing. But it's been twisted and it also has the opportunity to be destructive. And so this is much bigger than sort of like, uh, don't get drunk. No, there's a number of ways that alcohol can end up destroying your life. It can be something that takes all your time, as you're always drinking with buddies and your family suffers. It can loosen your tongue just enough so that you say those things to your wife that you otherwise would hold back. And so rather than nurturing and cherishing her as you've been called to, all of a sudden you're tearing her apart. There's this whole... (laughs) There's a whole day-drinking culture thing around stay-at-home moms. I'm just going to point it out, right, with sweatshirts that say, but wine first, right? Um, where, where moms are basically checking out while their kids are basically just sitting in front of binge-watching whatever the newest, you know, television ca- cartoon program, I don't know. Instead of actually doing, again, the work that God has called them to do and giving kids the, the attention that they need and deserve. Alcohol can even become a budget issue as it takes money that could be used for other purposes. Now, we've never been a teetotaling church that encourages abstinence from alcohol, particularly because I don't think the Bible does that, and it's not our job to go above and beyond what the Bible does. But we also need to be very clear about the ways in which it gets in the way of what we're called to. Because I have interacted with far too many Christians who have an unhealthy relationship with alcohol and are unwilling to address it, And when it's pointed out, get very defensive. Um, Think they have everything under control while everyone else around them is saying, no, you don't. Um, And so we need to, again, if we look at it from the standpoint of, is this helping me to do what God has called me to do? We need to be willing to listen to those outside who are saying, no, this isn't helping. This is getting in the way. This is a problem. It can't be allowed to have control over our lives that gets in the way of us living the life and purposes that we were created for. It simply isn't important enough to make those sorts of sacrifices for. And so this section is written to to kings, to leaders. As I've said, this is about much more than leaders. It's about much more than alcohol. This is actually really about how the purposes of our life drive how we organize the details. And when we get the purpose wrong, or if we just don't even know what the purpose is, then there's almost no way for us to keep all the specifics, including alcohol, in their place. Now self-help would tell us that the way to sort of get through this, the way to organize our lives is to get all the details right. Find the perfect job, find the perfect spouse, find the dream home, find the friends that fulfill you, the hobbies you enjoy, take enough vacations, consume all the food and drink you want. But what Proverbs tells us, what the Bible's clear about is that you can't get the specifics right if you don't know why you exist. That if you don't understand the bigger picture, every other part of life will sort of exist on its own. Everything will be a specific, unconnected issue to deal with. Every issue, like our relationship with alcohol, has to be addressed on its own terms rather than as part of a whole. But to have a clear idea of what our purpose is, gives us both a foundation and a confidence. It gives us a structure to organize the details around. It gives us a reason to say yes to this and no to this. And so this section in Proverbs ends by pointing us to the big picture. Verse 8, it says, Open your mouths for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. So this is the purpose for kings, be a voice for those who can't speak, fight for the rights of those who lack them, judge righteously and care for the poor and needy. In other words, kings are not to use their position to gain for themselves. They should not just be partying and reveling and simply enjoying life. God has given them work to do. And in order for them to take care of the poor and the destitute is going to require them to suspend some of their own rights for the sake of others. And so what we see here is a call to self-denial. This is a call to refuse things that you could rightfully claim as yours for the sake of something better. Now I will say, no one comes to the idea of self-denial by looking at the details. No one looks at kind of like what they want to do as they're doing their day planner and be like, hmm, I want to deny myself on Thursday from three to six. Like, it's just not how we do it. When we're looking at trying to get everything out of this life, it does not bring us to a place where we are actually willing to sacrifice. In order to embrace the giving of yourself that is called, we are called to here, requires us to know what we are giving it for. And so self-denial is the proper response to understanding our purpose. John Calvin summarized it this way. He has a little book called A Little Book on the Christian Life. It's short. It's good. You should read it. If you, it's like this. It's like that. Um, he said, "...if we are not our own but the Lord's, it's clear what errors we must flee and what we must direct our lives towards. We are not our own, therefore, neither our reason nor our will should dominate our plans and actions." We are not our own, therefore, let us not make the gratification of our life the end. We are not our own, therefore, as much as possible, let us forget ourselves and our own interests. In other words, understanding that our life is not our own, that we were created for a purpose, we were redeemed for a purpose, means our life is for the service of God. This gives us the big picture to organize the details around. Now Calvin uses that to then give us this direction for life. He says the proper use then of all the good gifts we have received is the free and generous sharing of those gifts with others. All that we have been given is to be used for bringing about the fulfillment of God's good plan, and all that we do and all that we are ordered around should be to accomplish this work. Our life is not our own to do with as we please. Instead, it's been given to us with a purpose, and that purpose has responsibilities. Now, as we approach Christmas, we get an example of what it looks like to orient a life completely for God's glory. Uh, In John 17, in the high priestly prayer, Jesus says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus was sure of his purpose. He knew what he was doing. He was here to accomplish the work that God had given him to do. And his motivation, we see here, was the glory of God and wanting to experience it fully once again. In this, we see then that Christmas is actually a celebration of self-denial. At Christmas, we are celebrating that Jesus was willing to set aside his glory, that which was rightfully his. As king, he could do what he wanted he sets that aside to come to earth to save those who are poor and destitute. He then fulfills the role of king perfectly, bringing justice and peace to the people whom he was given responsibility for. He did the full and complete work of saving those who are his. And he lived a life of perfection, complete self-denial, right? saying no to the thing that is right in front of him for that which was better so that he could be the perfect sacrifice required we spend a lot of time in this life defending our rights and then we put our hope in a savior who set his aside so as you come forward for communion today as you take the bread and the juice the body and blood of christ i ask that you come asking god to give you a clear picture of what he's entrusted to you What are the responsibilities that he has put in your life specifically? And then do the work of aligning your life with those purposes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for giving us clarity and direction and and purpose. Uh, We pray that you would also help us to uh, figure out what it looks like to actually live those out faithfully we love all the things that we get from you um, and sometimes we really don't know what to do with those things that you have called us to and so God I just pray that you would help us to see those as one that we can actually learn that self-denial is a good thing God help us to see that saying no to things that we want is actually for our benefit But more than that, I just pray that you would grow in our minds an understanding for what it means to be your people. Help us to see all the things that you have laid out before us, all the works that you have prepared beforehand for us to do, that we can become more and more singly-minded, focused on these things as we allow other things to move on. More than anything, we pray we thank you for the fact that this is even a conversation we can have with you. It's amazing that the God of the universe is willing to listen to our concerns. And so we thank you for the work that Jesus did to call us back to you. And I just pray that you would be glorified as we celebrate all that you have done. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.